and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Whoa, where the heck did 2022 go? I can't believe that we are at the end of the year and at the end of December releasing the last episode of the year. In case you missed an episode or were on the fence about listening to the full thing, check out these clips from December's episodes to see if you might want to go back and listen to it in its entirety. All right, here we go. First in December, we sat down with the Blex Le Salon, creator and host of the Boots on the Ground podcast in Kenya. And I would love to continue going down this path again, since I work for a safari company that one of our camps actually happens to not be far from where you worked or where you grew up. I want to ask somebody that is there, what is going on? Like, I've heard so much about cattle. I've heard so much about this, this, this and this and this. But I'm not there. I have literally no clue. So could you maybe tell us some like just kind of how I did? Like, could you just maybe what are some of the big issues that is being either ironed out right now or it isn't and is still a really big problem or what what is actually happening in your country right now good question good question a lot of wildlife 65 percent is found in communal lands and when you talk about this we are talking about uh, elephants you know the big big animals like even lions which are roaming free in uh, near community areas and human wildlife conflict is huge uh, we have lost a lot of cattle we have lost even lives you know and uh, farmers you know who live just adjacent to the protected areas who grow their their small produce for for or to sustain their livelihoods you know have lost these crops and in retaliation they go after these elephants so human wildlife conflict is huge and these are some of the issues that we're grappling with as a people in fact there was a video which went viral around um, june this year tourists were in a park and um, there was this boy who was herding his cattle inside uh, the park which is illegal I'm not sure whether it was a conservancy or it was, it was in the reserve, but there was this lion that was feasting on, on one cattle. And uh, this boy came running with a spear, you know, wanting to, to kill this lion. And the tourists were like, no, don't do this. Don't go there. This is a lion. And they were busy taking pictures. So you see that image alone shows you where we are. Yeah. I'm happy that the local government, you know, local NGOs, even international are coming up with measures, you know, to, to educate and to ensure that the community benefits. You know, when the community get incentives out of, uh, of conservation, they will support the initiatives if they are employed and properly paid, properly equipped, you know, and properly engaged in conservation issues, then they will take part. Climate change is huge, group. You know, this is something that is the world is disturbing the world over. Africa contributes almost 2.8% of global emissions. We are developing nations. The developed nations do this a lot. And us, we are we are the least emitters, but we suffer the consequences most. In Kenya, we have had the worst drought in 50 years. These couple of months have been really hard. Kettles are dying. People are dying of hunger. Our elephants, our wildlife, our zebras, all those, name them, they are dying in the parks. Even the other day I was watching television with my dad at home 
And our cabinet secretary, you know, was spearheading that uh, initiative of taking transporting water from Nairobi to the national parks using Bowser's, you know, that situation, the situation is dire and climate change is, is really disrupting everything, like agriculture, which we are big on, you know, wildlife, tourism, which we are big on, drought, yeah, it's affecting, it's affecting our livelihood. So climate change is one thing that is of a concern and I'm happy COP27 is beginning in uh, two days in Egypt. And I hope the, the, the parties that come together to formulate these policies and to drive change will we'll do something good and we'll, we will reap, uh, you know, something better, you know, funds to, to help us in adaptation, you know, to reduce the loss and damage, in, you know, with NEST. So these are some of the things that we are grappling with. Another one which is big is also habitat loss. Africa is developing and uh, people are uh, having families and um, the population is, is growing rapidly. And uh, in 2050, it is estimated that we will reach double figures. And uh, when people are many, you know, when the population is growing, we need water, we need food, we need houses, we need electricity. And where is this going to come from? So you'll find that uh, a lot of these development projects that are set up also interfere with the ecosystem. For example, um, there was this, uh, the railway, the SGR railway, which is passing inside the Nairobi National Park. And if you are aware, Nairobi City is the only city in the world with a national park adjacent to it. So what will happen to this wildlife, you know? Yeah. These are some of the decisions that we have to go back to the drawing board and think. Yes, we are developing. Yes, our people need these resources. But how can we do this in a sustainable way? How can we ensure that both sides win? How can we balance the needs of people and nature? So this is something that I'm sure it's in the minds of very many policymakers and very many people in, involved in conservation and tourism in this country and in Africa. And I hope to influence change and policy and to, to ensure that we talk about these issues and action is taken on the ground, really. Next, we had a thought-provoking conversation with Italian wolf expert Valeria Salvatore, PhD. So before we dive into more of your work and the amazing human dimension that you've really cultivated and an expert on, Let's first, if you wouldn't mind, let's go through the history of the wolf in the area. Right. So, yeah, like let, let's let's explore that a little bit. Could you take just take us through uh, maybe like a chronological order timeline of what the wolf has gone through up until today? And then we can start to dive into more of their management and the human element of this. But yeah, for, for context, what has the wolf gone through? <laughs> The wolf um, occupies a special place in our mind. If you consider, you know, think about when we were, since we are kids, we, we have this idea of the big bad wolf. It holds a special place in our culture, in our um, uh, Occidental culture, which is strongly dominated by Catholic elements. And in Catholicism, Symboli symbolicity, the wolf represents the bad. For those uh, who listen and who have children, 
they might get surprised or they might have noticed because I did when I got my children. I didn't realize it before that in most films, uh, cartoons and books for children, wolves are not only represented as bad, but also stupid. Hmm. They are usually greedy and not really clever and bad by nature. Yet they are an incredible species. You know, they have a family. They have some incredible rules that somehow are similar to, to our family rules, you know, whereby the only uh, alpha couple reproduce and they have a, a territory that the family defend. And, and when the young become sexually mature, they need to leave home. Just as our teenagers do, <laughs> you know, they, they start breaking the rules. And <laughs> if, uh, if they're not suited anymore to be at home, then they need to be let go. <laughs> <laughs> so for this reason, you know, the, the place that wolves hold in our culture is also very much uh, related, uh, it, it has very much affected the history of wolf in nature. It has been a bad uh, element to contrast since the Romans. Romans time, we have some written testimonies of the use of dogs to guard livestock against the wolf. And then wolves were killed systematically just to protect essentially our livestock. And so much so that bounties were paid to get rid of wolves in ancient times. Then at the beginning of the um, last century, I think wolves in Europe were already more or less healthy, in healthy state. And when urbanization started and increased, uh, its population started going down because essentially humans invaded its space, both uh, through deforestation and the use of, uh, of land for urbanization. So in Italy, for example, the minimum of the wolf population was reached at the beginning of the 1970s. And in those years, the species was declared as protected species. And this happened in many other countries in Europe where wolves were decreased in their population and, and they were declared a protected species. Most countries, though, when entered the European Union, then had to um, implement the Habitat Directives, and that was in the early 90s. The Habitat Directives included the wolf in the Annex 4, so the list of protected species, animal species, and, and that was the beginning, I think, of the process that took back the wolf in most of the European landscapes that we see now. Wolves in Europe are now present in a lot of countries where uh, they were absent for nearly 50 years. We wow. see wolves in Belgium, in the Netherlands. They have come back in Germany for the last 12 years at a very rapid pace. They have recolonized most of the uh, Italian territory. We have now wolves uh, all throughout the uh, peninsular 
uh, Italy and still in the colonization process of the Alps. We have wolves in Switzerland and we have wolves, uh, you know, from Portugal to essentially all across uh, Eastern Europe. There are countries where wolves have never disappeared. Romania is one of them, Poland, Ukraine and Russia. And in these countries, the, their populations are still, you know, quite doing quite well. Poland, not so much, but it's still increasing, it's, it's recovering. I think we can now say that in most European countries, wolf is near threatened, you know, it's not, it's still to be considered a protected species, but not in danger anymore. I think it, it has gone through a very strong recovery process and, uh, and it has made it. We still have some few wolves in the Scandinavian countries where, you know, other interests are very strong. In many countries, the return of the wolf has triggered a lot of reactions. I don't know why. Well, in a certain sense, yes, we know why. And we have said it before, you know, because of the history of the cultural history of the wolf, the presence of the wolf um, is associated to extreme reactions. Either you love it or you hate it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is reflected also in the social movements that people give towards these species. Whenever there is a public event on wolves, there are a lot of people that show up and some of them are strongly against the wolf and some of them just love it, you know, and, and, and want it to be there just for the sake of knowing that he, it's there. Third in December, we met Aylan Akaya, PhD, cetacean expert and the first Turkish female biologist pursuing research on whales and dolphins in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. You've been really good at just hitting all the things and tackling this really amazing amount of stuff, which is super exciting, which we'll dive into right now. So teach us about the Mediterranean's marine mammals. What, I guess, I guess maybe first it just makes sense. What is even there? Because I think a lot of people, when they think of the Mediterranean, they think, you know, sunsets with wine and beautiful and beaches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not necessarily as a rich biodiverse ecosystem that, that hosts some amazing cetaceans. So yes. please maybe start going to some of the research. What is there? And maybe it teaches a little bit about them too and how they live. Okay. So if we are looking globally, there's a 90 different species of cetaceans. And like around 60% of them are threatened by the OCN red list. So their population is declining one way or the other. And 60% is quite a large number, you know? Uh, but when we come to the Mediterranean Sea, it's actually even worse because 100% is declining. So we wow. have like, yeah, it's quite sad. And because it's, it's not like an ocean, you know, it's an enclosed sea. So the effect we put stays inside. So it doesn't disperse easily. 
we have around 20 different species in the Mediterranean Sea. And if you are on the western and central Mediterranean Sea, the biodiversity of cetaceans and the population number is higher. But this might be just a result of dedicated research effort because cetaceans are studied since like 1980s in the Mediterranean Like, Of course, there's previous research as well, but systematic surveys are started around like 1980s. And Spain, Italy, France are really good, you know, they have like continuous survey efforts there. They have multiple years of studies. So they have a more accurate picture than what I see for my regions at the moment. And now you look at the map of species distribution, you can see that all the way up until to the central Mediterranean Sea, it's like cetacean heaven. We have sperm whales, risto dolphins, fin whales, beak whales, all different kinds of delphinids. So it's quite rich. But after central Mediterranean Sea, so you just draw a line from Italy all the way to the end of Turkey, it's just nothing. Mm. But this nothing is actually represented by the research effort more than if the animals are there or not. Before we start, sadly, before we start our NGO in 2015 in Turkey, there was no dedicated research effort in the entire Eastern Mediterranean Sea, not except Greece. In the entire Eastern Mediterranean Sea, not only for Turkey, but if you go all the way down, you know, it's like there's no data. The information is coming from stranded animals and opportunistic, opportunistic sightings. So if someone is on a fishing boat, they're fishing, and then they randomly encounter an animal, and luckily they report that. But there wasn't a dedicated research effort in the area. And that's why we went in to fill the gap with a really tiny... Uh, resources we have, but we are all a team of dedicated women, I like to underline, that put all the time and effort and resources voluntarily to to do the project, because we need to know what's happening in our waters as well. So in the eastern Mediterranean Sea of Turkey, we know that there is eight different uh, species of cetaceans. So we have sperm whales, which is, you know, highly liked by the public as well. But they're also really endangered too because ship strikes, marine traffic, they form a big threat on the populations. So in the entire Mediterranean Sea, it's estimated that there's like 300 individuals left for the sperm males, so 300 uh, adults, which is such a low number, you know, it's like, because uh, they're also long-lived animals too. For them to reach the maturity, it takes time. So it's not going to be like, okay, there's a new baby uh, born and then they can reproduce in five years. That's not the case. We need to wait like 15 years, 20 years for to have the firstborn. And then they need to take care of the firstborn and then it could be four to five years, they breed again. So it, the interval is quite large. So any decline on the population has a really terrible impact for the survival of the species, which is really important. We also have curious big whales. Big whales are really shy animals. They really don't like noise pollution in the area. They are so sensitive to sound. And right now, you know, the traffic we do at sea, uh, the drilling we do to get whatever we want to get under the sea, the oil and gas, Navy practices, everything puts extra pressure the habitat and like I said because Mediterranean Sea is a close almost close sea the noise cannot 
spread. It just comes back again, you know, it's just echoing inside. And that's why there is a big decline on the population as well. But uh, there is a region which is known as one of the most protected MPA, Pelagos. There they showed an increase in their number, which is really nice because they have the mitigation and conservations and all those stuff. But when we look at the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, because there is no knowledge, we don't also know what's the impact as well. So we don't know if the populations are increasing, decreasing, like are, is this their home range? Is, are they just living here? Are they going somewhere else? So there's a big knowledge gap. So that's why the research is quite important. But big whales are declining as well. Uh, and they are the deepest diving mammals, which is really important. Sperm whales are the biggest shooted whales. So that's also really important too. We have females. And other than the females, we have the delphinate species, bottlenose dolphins, common dolphins, striped dolphins. We have a, a humpback dolphin as well, which is assumed to come from the CH channel. I don't know if I'm saying pronouncing it right, but so it's it's an alien species, let's say. It's coming. It doesn't belong to Mediterranean Sea. So we have one extra species right now, and yeah, so false killer whale. So it is actually quite high, you know, like the number of different species that exist in the area. But still, we know such a little information about even the baseline information is missing in the area. So we just started. Even though it's an NGO for seven years, you may think like, wow, seven years is good, but it's not. It's just, you know, it's a little peak to their lifespan at the moment. Lastly, in December and lastly of 2022, we sat down with Natasha Babic, Eurasian brown bear researcher and PhD candidate at Monash University. So now we're finally to brown bears. How <laughs> yes. exciting. You have gone through your journey, all the winding path, and you yes. have found your love, which is brown bears. So yes. actually, could you maybe give us a little bit of a European Eurasian brown bear 101? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. maybe what what's the history of them on the continent especially in in particular your area because yeah. like you said you're in a very special part of Europe that I think that it special. itself needs a little bit more explanation about what's what's going on what's happened especially with brown bears so yeah, yeah to, to just like spew brown bear knowledge and facts <laughs> on us teach us about this really incredible species Cool, let's do it. Yeah, of course, like by no means am I an expert yet, but yeah, two years of, of being into it, it's it's getting there. So I'm not the top, but I'm, I'm learning and I can definitely share with you guys some really key, cool facts. So these are the same species that are known as grizzly bears in North America, but basically after, you know, thousands of years of isolation and separation, they there are some changes and it's still being debated in the bear community whether the grizzlies in north america are for example like a, a full-on subspecies of like the eurasian brown bear but i'm i'm not an expert in this topic and i don't know if someone will listen to this that might be like no it is a subspecies no it's not it's not like solid yet so when we say eurasian brown bear or brown bear or grizzly bear at the moment it's Again, this is also, it depends on the research group. It's still Ursus Arctos, um, but in some research groups in America, they're like, um, in North America, they're like Ursus Arctos horribilis. 
which is funny because some people are like, no, they're not horrible. They're just misunderstood. <laughs> anyway, so just for context, it is the same species at the moment, but there's a lot of, yeah, it's political. It's not my area of expertise. And yeah, we are dealing with the same, but I believe grizzlies are a little bit bigger. So basically we used to have bears thriving throughout most of the European continent, even in the UK, um, you know, Scotland, England, they haven't had them for thousands of years. Um, of course, due to persecution over time, coexistence, I'm learning as, as an Aussie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. We all want coexistence with all animals and large carnivores, but it's complicated. And so as a result of, you know, thousands of years of persecution, they are now in 10 populations across Europe. I wish I had a map that I could like point it out <laughs> here. But we have, uh, let's see if I remember all of them, but I have a list. So we have the Scandinavian population, Karelian, which is like in this area between Finland and Russia. Yes, yeah, so I, I won't go through all of them, all of them, but we have so Scandinavian, Karelian, Baltic, Carpathian, East Balkan, Alpine, Kruvenian, Cantabrian, and my lovely area, which is the Dinara Pindos. And so that spans from the Dinaric Mountains, which are like in Slovenia, to the Pindos Mountains in Greece. So basically that is, it includes nine countries across that area. And this is where it gets like super interesting and complicated, of course. So we have nine countries within this population. So genetically, they are the most similar. They're all Eurasian brown bears, but you know, they're broken up into these distinct parts. So yeah, we have nine countries in Dinara Pindos from Slovenia to Greece. My study area in particular includes Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. I, I bit off a lot there. For that my is PhD. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, once you are meeting all these great people, it's like, do you want data from the Greek population? Do you want data from these? And I'm like... I want, but I guess with a PhD, you have a limited time, so you kind of have to. And the problem is, I mean, it's quite interesting. According to the European Union, I think it's the Habitats Directive, the brown bay is listed as a strictly protected species. But that's only in EU member state countries. So in the Dinara Pindos, not all of them are uh, EU member states. And... That's just in my region. So when you extrapolate that to the whole of Europe, it's like this one's EU member, this one's not. And they're bordering. And of course, animals don't know borders. So the management of these animals is very difficult and super controversial. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot, really. It is a lot. And that's why I wanted to come and try and help because, yeah, they're, they're, cohesion is coming together. But basically, even within this strictly protected status, for example, Slovenia and Croatia are part of the EU. For my study region, they're the only countries that are part of the EU and the bear is strictly protected. But they still have hunting allowed for bears. So it's really funny when I'm explaining to people. They're strictly protected, but they're hunted. And then people are like, but are they, how are they protected? Then? How does that work? Okay, I finally, after two years, can explain this properly. So basically... Slovenia and Croatia are like the powerhouses of brown bear research in this Dinarapi Pindos. I think Greece also, but I'm you know, sort of tunnel vision for these areas. And they have been able to show every year they, they collaborate with hunters. The hunters, they work extremely well with the teams here. And basically the deal is when they, um, when they hunt a bear, they must provide a sample to 
um, the university and then to the ministries, like a tooth of the bear, which is how we age the bear, um, a muscle sample, and then some hair. So then we get the idea of the population structure, the genetics, and they are also sending us, um, I think it's different per year, it's different per country, depends who's in the ministry. Every few years, there must be like a census of how many bears are visiting their feeding sites. So within the landscape, you know, it's broken down into all these hunting grounds. And in each hunting ground, there's feeding sites, which are basically um, a place where they put supplemented food and the animals come in and they can shoot them from there, which is across a lot of the European landscape. So for me, sometimes it's hard to say, are there many wild, wild, untouched places? It's, it's difficult. In national parks, they are not supposed to do supplemental feeding. So that's good. But anyway, so through all of these years of working with the hunters and keeping a really good track of everything, Slovenia and Croatia have been able to show that even with hunting, the population is sustainable. In if anything, since hunting has been so regulated, there's been evidence of population increases. So this is why the EU is still allowing hunting in uh, Slovenia and Croatia because they have a really substantial bear population and it hasn't negatively impacted on it. And I'm not sure about Slovenia as much, but I believe it's similar. You know, every year the hunting clubs, they get quotas about what bears can be hunted, how many, how many males, how many females, you know, of course, cubs are always protected. So it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty well monitored. It's pretty well regulated. Of course, there's poaching happening every, every part of the world. I'm not sure if anyone's immune to poaching, but I, I believe that it's, it's doing, they're doing a really good job long story short with keeping that monitored and regulated but in the other countries in my study region we have serbia and montenegro where there is no bear hunting cloud none and the supplemental feeding for hunting even for like deer or wild boar it's not on such a large scale so we have a more natural wild landscape in these places especially montenegro which for anyone that is probably thinking what even is montenegro amazing country put it on your <laughs> list like just mountains upon mountains and then the beautiful Adriatic Sea. It's, it's a great place um, and it's very untouched. It's oh, amazing. Yeah, so we don't have hunting in those ones. And then we have Bosnia in the middle of my study region. Bosnia and Herzegovina. It is politically, mm. I won't say un unstable, but it's, it's a very complicated country politically. And as a result of that, the management of large carnivores is equally complicated. And that is it, a snapshot of December's wide-ranging episodes. Hopefully one of the clips piqued your interest enough to go back and listen to the full episode. I know we'll sure be happy if you did. As always, we want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community and spending the last year with us. If you'd like to support the show in other creative ways other than just listening, which again, we absolutely love if you do, there are several options to do so. Some zero-cost ways to support the show include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at the website or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. 
at least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, for making the show sound and look awesome and focus right for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewatology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends. Until next year, friends. Together, we'll rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.